The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Our second close call was, of course, January 6th. After the election, uh, various Trump allies like Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell started calling on Trump to exercise all kinds of emergency powers to overturn the election results. uh, And the Insurrection Act was one of them. Now, most of what these people were calling for was pure fantasy. Trump would have had no legal authority to do what they were recommending. But on January 6th itself, after the attack started, There was a real danger that Trump could have invoked the Insurrection Act on the pretext of keeping the peace. And at that point, he could have used federal forces to close down the Capitol building, again, with the stated goal of preventing violence, but with the actual purpose and effect of preventing or delaying the vote from being certified. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for September 28th, 2022. For much of its history, the United States has had a single law on the books that governs when the president can deploy the military to enforce federal law within the United States, the Insurrection Act. While the act hasn't been invoked in decades, it played an important role in several recent controversies, including the acts of January 6th. And now some scholars have written the January 6th Commission urging that it be included in the broader set of reforms that committee is reportedly getting ready to endorse. To learn more, I sat down with the two authors of the recent submission to the committee, Liza Goitin, Senior Director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, and her colleague Joseph Nunn, counsel at the same program. We discussed the history of the Insurrection Act, what they think makes it dangerous, and how Congress should try to fix it. It's the Lawfare Podcast for September 28th, How to Fix the Insurrection Act. A brief disclaimer before we get started. As is mentioned in our discussion, I was among a group of outside experts who advised Goitin and Nunn on their project though I did not have a role in the final product and have not endorsed their conclusions. So we are here today to talk about the Insurrection Act, a law that gets talked about occasionally when we have big domestic crises of different types, has been discussed a lot over the last few years in relation to large protests around Black Lives Matters protests, initially in the deployment of National Guard troops to our nation's capital streets here in Washington, D.C. and other parts of the country, then also in the context of January 6th incident attack or insurrection, I should say, and events surrounding that and the election. But when we say Insurrection Act, we're actually talking about something with a little bit of a longer history. It's not as easy as just one act. Joe, tell us a little bit 
about what we actually are talking about when we talk about the Insurrection Act. What's the origin of this law and how it's kind of evolved into its present state? So what is often called the Insurrection Act of 1807 is, in fact, an amalgamation of statutes that were enacted over the course of essentially the first century of the United States' history. So it starts with the Cullen Fourth Act of 1792, which implemented and in terms of its language closely tracked the Cullen Fourth Clause in Article One of the Constitution. That is the Cullen Fourth Clause is the only portion of the Constitution that directly gives one of the branches, namely Congress, the authority to provide for deploying the military domestically to do things like enforce the law. So what the Cullen Fourth Act did is it implemented that authority and delegated to the president the authority to deploy the, uh, the military domestically for three purposes, to repel invasions, suppress insurrections, and to enforce the law. Now, the founders had been extremely suspicious about domestic military operations, and uh, this manifested in the way they wrote the law. Uh, specifically, they attached a, a bunch of restrictions and sort of procedural hurdles to uh, using the military under the Insurrection Act, or in this case, the Cullen Fourth Act, to enforce the law. So uh, the president had to get uh, certification from a, a federal judge that there was an actual need to uh, use the military to enforce the law. And there were also limitations on which sorts of troops he could use and uh, for how long. The other thing about the, the 1792 Act was that it sunset after three years. Since then, Congress has sort of tweaked and modified the law over time. So after the law sunset in 1795, Congress replaced it with a permanent version that was essentially the same, except that it removed some of those procedural safeguards. Um, so perhaps most importantly, it removed that judicial certification requirement. In 1807, Congress added a single sentence to the act that allowed the president to use uh, the regular armed forces and not just state uh, state militia forces. Then in 1861, Congress again amended, at this point we're talking about the, the 1795 Act because the 1792 Act is gone, amended it in response to the Civil War to sort of expand the president's powers to enable President Lincoln to uh, sort of prosecute the war against the Confederacy. Then in 1871, Congress passed uh, the Ku Klux Klan Act, the third section of which became uh, what is now the third sort of operative portion of the Insurrection Act. And that is uh, famous as that's the civil rights enforcement provision of the law that uh, was used to, uh, you know, for example, by President Eisenhower in Little Rock, Arkansas. Then the last substantive change to the act came just a few years later in 1874, during the codification of the revised statutes of the United States, which were the uh, the first actual sort of codified body of uh, U.S. laws, rather than just until then, uh, the United States had just had a series of sort of freestanding enactments. They changed the first provision of the 1795 Act and eliminated the president's authority under the Insurrection Act to repel invasions. The reasoning for that is somewhat unclear. Uh, because there's not a lot of legislative history to work with. That is, 
in many ways, the story of the Insurrection Act is for all of these changes, there's not a lot of associated legislative history, but it's possible that they were responding to a Supreme Court decision and the prize cases that found the president had inherent authority under the Constitution to repel some attacks. And in sort of in response to that case, they determined that the repel invasions portion of the Insurrection Act was essentially not necessary. But with that change in 1874, the Insurrection Act was brought to what is essentially its current form. There have it's been you know recodified and moved around the U.S. Code since then, um, and there have been some tweaks to the language, often to re- replace sort of very overcomplicated 19th century legislative phrasing. But otherwise, the law has not changed in 150 years. So, in juggling these authorities that the Constitution provides to Congress about when you can use the militia, then expanding it to regular army. Really, Congress uh, and the founders before that are dealing in a terrain in which there is a lot of history, English tradition, ideas about the role of the military domestically and the inappropriate roles of the military domestically. And then much later in the mid-19th century, we see the, or late 19th century, I should say, the enactment of a Posse Comitatus Act, an act that now lives in kind of an interesting parallel with the Insurrection Act. Liza, tell us a little bit more about what exactly the competing interests are that we see in this evolution of the Insurrection Act. What are the different factors it's trying to balance, particularly after the Posse Comitatus Act kind of enters into the scene? Sure. It's a great question. Um, the first thing to understand is that, as you were referring to, there's a long-standing tradition in Anglo-American law against military intrusion into the affairs of, ci- of civilian government, you know, dating back to the Magna Carta. Uh, the framers of the Constitution were extremely worried about the threat that a standing army would pose to both state sovereignty and individual liberty. And so they took pains to ensure that the military would remain subordinate to civilian authority. And you see that throughout the Constitution, in particular, granting Congress a significant amount of authority over over the military and over the power to declare war, et cetera. Uh, But the framers also understood that emergencies might happen, uh, that there might actually be the need for for, military force domestically on occasion. And, uh, And so... Uh, in the calling forth clause of the Constitution, which Joseph mentioned, uh, they gave Congress the power to provide for calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, to suppress insurrections, and to repel invasions. Now, the first part of that balance, the the principle that the military should keep out of civilian affairs, is reflected in the Posse Comitatus Act, which is a law that Congress passed in 1878. The immediate impetus for the law uh, was somewhat ignominious. I mean, the law was essentially being passed to prevent federal forces from enforcing uh, civil rights laws and essentially uh, preventing the insurgency by the Ku Klux Klan and, and other such organizations in the South in the, in the wake of the Civil War. But despite that sort of ignominious history, uh, or at least immediate impetus, the, the Posse Comitatus Act reflects this long-standing principle that the military should stay out of civilian affairs. And what it does is it bars federal forces from participating in law enforcement activities, uh, except as Congress has specifically provided. And military participation in law enforcement is is particularly disfavored uh, because of this notion that that if the president has essentially 
a domestic military police force, that that can very quickly become an instrument of tyranny. But as I said, the Posse Comitatus Act only bars military participation in law enforcement as a general matter, and Congress can make exceptions. And the Insurrection Act is the primary exception to the Posse Comitatus Act. And as Joseph mentioned, it reflects Congress's exercise of its power under the Calling Forth Clause. Now, you might think that since it's an exception to uh, such an important and foundational rule, it would be narrowly drawn. But as Joseph points out, when it was last amendment amended, that was during the Civil War and the terrorist insurgency that followed in the South. And at the time, the country was under existential threat. Uh, and modern police departments essentially did not exist. They certainly didn't have the capacity necessary to put down the insurgency. So Congress ended up handing the president sweeping powers to deploy federal forces, eliminating pretty much all of the checks that had existed in previous versions of the law. And the law has not been meaningfully amended since then. So it still provides this sweeping and frankly dangerous authority to the president. Joseph, Liza has already teed up uh, the fact that this is a broad grant of authority that can be used different ways. Tell us a little bit about the ways we have seen the Insurrection Act actually be used. What sort of crises has it been invoked to allow troops or militias to deploy to address, particularly, and how is that, how is that used, how has that change evolved over the years as the act itself has evolved? So this is a fascinating question, Scott. The Insurrection Act has been used a number of times, though how you sort of, it, it depends on how you count. So the act has been invoked 40 times, but because presidents have sometimes invoked it uh, multiple times in response to a single event, those 40 invocations really only correspond to about 30 discrete events. And they range from what could absolutely fairly be described uh, as insurrections to on on the sort of what we might consider the sort of most legitimate end to on the opposite end of the spectrum, they, uh, the Insurrection Act has been used by presidents to deploy federal troops to uh, essentially help employers break labor strikes. So the, in the early part of American history, it was generally just used for what we would describe as insurrections. So the, the Whiskey Rebellion uh, in um, 1793, I believe, uh, or 1793, and then uh, Freeze's Rebellion. And then, of course, President Lincoln used the Insurrection Act uh, to prosecute the Civil War. Uh, that is unsurprisingly the sort of longest lasting uh, invocation of the, of the act. It lasted from 1861 until 1866. In the second half of the 19th century, you start to see the purposes for which the Insurrection Act is invoked expand. Uh, so that's when you see a series of invocations by multiple presidents to intervene in labor uh, labor disputes, almost invariably on the side of employers. The Insurrection Act was also used by, as uh, Liza mentioned, uh, by President Ulysses S. Grant to um, suppress the Ku Klux Klan in the early 1870s. And then after uh, successfully suppressing the, the Klan, Grant repeatedly invoked the act in an effort to stop what in several cases were essentially uh, coups d'etat uh, against sort of reconstruction governments in the South. Uh, so, for example, um, he invoked the Insurrection Act multiple times in Louisiana to uh, try and sort of prop up uh, this 
pro-Reconstruction Republican government against the efforts of uh, white supremacists, uh, former Confederate uh, redeemers to sort of overthrow the government and install their own. Uh, in those efforts, he was actually ultimately unsuccessful. You also saw in the, the late 19th century, uh, presidents use the Insurrection Act for things like uh, in the Pacific Northwest to protect Chinese immigrants from uh, violent white mobs who were seeking to sort of expel them from the cities of Seattle and Tacoma and uh, compel them onto ships to return to China. This sort of pattern of uses continues. And then in, during the Civil Rights Movement, 1950s, 1960s, uh, you have what are probably the most famous uses of the Insurrection Act. So that's uh, by President Eisenhower and then President Kennedy deploying troops under the act to uh, enforce federal court orders, desegregating public schools in uh, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama. So that's that's the era of the Insurrection Act as civil rights enforcement tool. Uh, it's important to understand, though, the Insurrection Act has not been used for civil rights enforcement since 1965. Since 1965, the dominant use for the act has been responding to what you might call civil rep, civil unrest, in some cases, uh, so-called race riots. So it has, it has been used in places like Detroit and Los Angeles to send in troops to uh, suppress unrest in these cities with large African-American populations where the unrest has been sparked by patterns of uh, oppression and systematic mistreatment of these African-American communities by the authorities. So over the course of the 20th century, we have seen this shift from Insurrection Act as tool of civil rights enforcement to, in many ways, Insurrection Act as tool of preserving a uh, sort of status quo that suppresses and disadvantages marginalized communities. The last time the Insurrection Act was used was in 1992 uh, in response to the, the 1992 LA riots that followed the acquittal of several Los Angeles uh, police officers. So the that was 30 years ago, which makes this actually the longest period the United States has gone without an invocation of the Insurrection Act since 1792. If I could jump onto that and just add that, you know, the more recent uses, obviously 1992 and previously, so not that recent, but the more recent uses of the Insurrection Act to suppress so-called race riots. I mean, in those cases, uh, you know, especially the, the, in 1967 in Detroit and 1992 in Los Angeles, as Joseph was talking about, those were cases where local police were arguably overwhelmed. Um, so, but they were also cases in which the police, the very same police who were overwhelmed were the ones who had per perpetrated the racial injustices that caused the riots in the first place. And, and the police in those instances actually exacerbated the violence that then resulted in the need for deployment by their own conduct, by excessive uses of force during the riots. Uh, so these are uh, kind of difficult and disturbing examples of, of uses of the act. And in general, you add that to... You know, historical uses of the act to suppress labor movements. And, and it's definitely a mixed record in terms of how the act has been used in the past. Well, that tees up my next question really well, because of course, we're talking about this today in part because you all have assembled and submitted a very well-researched, very thoroughly developed proposal for reforms to the January 6th committee, implying that this, the Insurrection Act and this debate and issues with it have a very contemporary relevance, particularly in relation to that action and, and related controversies around and arising from the 2020 election, that 
did not involve an invocation of the Insurrection Act. Again, it actually hasn't been used in, in 30 years now or so, or less than 30 years, I suppose. So what has the experience of the last few years shown about the Insurrection Act that, in your view, Liza, makes the case that this is the moment we need to revisit this and look at this very closely? How did it arise, even if it wasn't invoked, in the context of recent events that you all find alarming and thinks the January 6th committee and Congress more broadly needs to pay attention to? Uh, Let me first put a bit of a finer point on what is concerning about the act, and then I can explain how, uh, why those concerns were raised uh, in the last couple of years. So the law in its current form suffers from a number of, of dangerous flaws. The criteria for deployment are set forth in vague, archaic language that is very much open to interpretation. And the law gives the president all of the power to interpret it. Um, you know, somewhere around 200 years ago, the Supreme Court held uh, that the president alone has the power under the act to determine whether the criteria for deployment have been met. Uh, and then the law also gives the president seemingly limitless powers to deal with the crisis. The president can deploy the active duty armed forces, but in addition, he can summon the militia, which is defined by Congress to include essentially all able-bodied men between the ages of, I think it's 17 and 45, and all women in the National Guard. And if that's not enough, he can use, uh, quote, any other means, whatever, whatever that entails. And there is no role for Congress or for the courts in preventing abuse. Uh, of these authorities. So so it's not hard to see how dangerous this law could be in the hands of an unscrupulous president. And as you mentioned, Scott, we had a couple of very close calls under Donald Trump. The first came in June 2020 during the protests that erupted all over the country in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd. Uh, Trump threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act and deploy the military. Defense Secretary Asper publicly said that that was a bad idea, which is one of the things that got him fired. And so the, so Trump did not invoke the act. Now, that's not to say that all went well. I mean, instead of invoking the act, he deployed a paramilitary force of sorts, the Customs and Border Patrol in Portland. And he also requested that states deploy their National Guard forces to D.C. Uh, and he was able to do that without invoking the Insurrection Act uh, because the Posse Comitatus Act doesn't apply to Guard forces unless they've been federalized. Uh, and he found 11 governors who were willing uh, to essentially invade another jurisdiction with their own guard forces. I use the term invade because the elected leader of Washington, D.C., uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser, opposed the deployment. In any case, our second close call was, of course, January 6th. After the election, uh, various Trump allies like Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell started calling on Trump to exercise all kinds of emergency powers to overturn the election results. uh, And the Insurrection Act was one of them. Now, most of what these people were calling for was pure fantasy. Trump would have had no legal authority to do what they were recommending. But on January 6th itself, after the attack started, there was a real danger that Trump could have invoked the Insurrection Act on the pretext of keeping the peace. And at that point, He could have used federal forces to close down the Capitol building, again, with the stated goal of preventing violence, but with the actual purpose and effect of preventing or delaying the vote from being certified. That's obviously not what actually happened. But if he had used the law in that way, I do think that courts would have been in a bit of a bind. And so that makes really clear, really throws into sharp relief the potential for abuse of this law absent some very significant 
changes. So let's dig into the problem that you flagged for the law and the ways that you all have brought forward about potentially addressing those problems, ways to improve upon it, to reform it. Joseph, let's begin with the process for invoking the Insurrection Act. This is actually a part of the law that's been on the books since 1792, which is that the president has to issue a proclamation saying essentially, you know, everybody needs to go back home who's part of this insurrection or other sort of uprising, go back home. I'm I'm about to deploy the Insurrection Act, to paraphrase very loosely. Tell us about what you all think is deficient about the process as it's laid out in the current Insurrection Act and how you all would change it. Absolutely. So the problem with the current process is it vests essentially infinite discretion in the president. As Liza mentioned, uh, there's the Supreme Court case, uh, Martin B. Mott, from about 200 years ago, where the, the court ruled that the president alone decides what constitutes an insurrection, and uh, no one, including the courts, can question that. Uh, now, importantly, we're talking here about sections uh, 252 and section 253 of the current act. The, the first section, section 251, does require a request from a state government for assistance. Uh, the other two can be unilateral. So the president simply has to make a determination that a given situation has, you know, represents a conspiracy or unlawful assemblage, whatever either of those things mean, um, or, you know, some other archaic term that has made it impracticable to enforce the law by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings. Uh, Again, the law does not define what that means. And then the president simply makes that determination on uh, his own judgment issues a proclamation and can deploy troops. And the proclamation does not have to precede the deployment of troops by any sort of period of time. Uh, It can be simultaneous. There's also, there's no uh, limits on the uh, type of forces that can be deployed. So, you know, the president can, we might say, reasonably choose to deploy a uh, a unit of military police. Uh, The president can also deploy an armored division. You know, the law is written, the president can deploy, you know, fighter jets and attack helicopters. There's no limit. Now, the Supreme Court has made clear that what troops do once deployed is a subject for judicial review. But the actual deployment, uh, the court has said, no one can question. The the sort of the, the, the simplest way to put the problem with the current system is there's there's simply no limits. There's no guidelines, no restrictions. In terms of how we would fix it, I'm actually going to kick that over to Liza. Sure. So there are a lot of pieces to it. And if we are just talking about the procedure for invoking the act, then I'll just start with that because then we also uh, have some more more, more substantive uh, and and additional procedural checks that, that are later down the line. But when it comes to actually invoking the act in the first place, we would require the president to, first of all, Uh, consult with Congress in every possible instance before invoking the Insurrection Act. There's a provision in the War Powers Resolution that requires the president to consult with Congress if possible before deploying troops overseas. Certainly that Congress's involvement should be just as great, if not greater, in the domestic context. So we're requiring that, again, where possible. We would also require the president to issue the proclamation in advance of the actual deployment. It, it wouldn't 
it wouldn't have to be very far in advance because really in today's days of instant communication, the amount of time between when the president uh, issues a proclamation and actually mobilizes the troops, which does take a little bit of time, would be plenty to give the people uh, who are being ordered to disperse the chance to actually do so. <laughs> and of course, they, they don't have the chance to disperse if the proclamation comes simultaneously uh, with the deployment. So the idea of the proclamation is to try to avoid the need for deployment. And to do that, it has to come first. We would then require a joint certification and report by the president, the secretary of defense, and the attorney general to Congress, ideally at the time of deployment, but no later than four hours after deployment. That would set forth some basic information that would enable Congress to perform the necessary oversight. So the certification and the report would have to set forth the circumstances necessitating deployment. It would include a certification that uh, either that the state has requested deployment or uh, that the state is unwilling or unable to address the circumstances necessitating deployment. We would also require a certification that options other than federal military deployment had either been exhausted or, or that they would likely be insufficient and that delay would, would be likely to cause irreparable harm. We want deployment of the federal military for law enforcement purposes to be a matter of last resort. And finally, the report would have to include a description uh, of the size, mission, scope, and expected duration uh, of the use of armed forces. So I think that pretty much covers it for the actual process of invocation. And then, of course, there's a lot more to it. But um, I think that was your question. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report 
from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Let's turn to those substantive issues. I think Joseph teed those up to us, but I'll, I'll turn to you for those, Liza. Tell us a little bit about, of course, these criterion that we know are laid out in statute, but on which the president, it seems, gets or would likely get substantial deference about when the authority provided by the Insurrection Act can actually be invoked once the procedure is full. What do you think are the problems with the way those conditions where the president can react are currently laid out? And how would you address them? And then how does that intersect with what the president can do? If you are imposing certain constraints on what the president can do, which, as Joseph noted, are, are largely absent from the law or extremely limited, what sorts of limitations are you presenting and why do you think those are justifiable, won't be too restrictive in terms of responding to the sorts of crises this authority is supposed to empower the president to respond to? Uh, yeah, so that's an easy question. I can answer it in like two sentences. 
I'm kidding. I mean, this, it is impossibly difficult to, not impossibly, but extremely difficult to come up with criteria that will provide the necessary flexibility for the president in, in a true crisis, uh, but that will also provide sufficient constraints to prevent against unnecessary or, or abusive deployments. Uh, this was the hardest part of our task. And uh, well, let me start by saying that the current law, uh, as I mentioned before, I think ha- has some very archaic and vague language that is that creates this, this extremely broad authority. And just to give you an example, the third part of the act allows the president to use the militia or the armed forces or quote any other means to suppress uh, any insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful combination or conspiracy if it opposes or obstructs the execution of the laws of the United States or impedes the course of justice under those laws. Now, I, I don't know what an unlawful combination is or, or, or what the, the drafters of this legislation meant by conspiracy, you know, or what they meant by opposing the execution of the laws of the United States. These terms are not defined in the law if you read them literally. You know, if you take the, the modern meaning of the term conspiracy, this is broad enough to allow the president to deploy federal armed forces if two or more people are uh, conspiring to intimidate a witness in a federal trial. And perhaps a more realistic abuse, one one that you would worry about a little bit more, is that it could be used, for example, to deploy federal forces uh, in the case of an unpermitted protest, right? Because that you could maybe say that's an unlawful combination, an unpermitted protest to oppose the execution of an executive order that's controversial, let's say the Muslim ban. So would that literally fall under the terms of the statute? You know, it might. So, so that's the kind of thing that, that we were dealing with. And to try to figure out the best way to revise this language, we did not go it alone. Um, we developed our proposal over the course of about a year in consultation uh, with a couple of different uh, sets of groups. Uh, first, we are members of a small left-right coalition of organizations that work on reforming domestic deployment authorities. And several of those groups... Uh, explicitly signed on to this proposal, including Protect Democracy, the Project on Government Oversight, Human Rights First, and the Niskanen Center. And we also, as you know, consulted throughout this time with a group of experts in the relevant areas of military and constitutional law. Uh, And many of these people are no strangers to lawfare, people including yourself, uh, Steve Vladek, Dakota Rudisil, Mark Nevitt, Bill Banks, Steve Dykus, Gene Fidel, really a dream team of experts who helped us think through these issues, uh, some of which are quite thorny. And I should say that we haven't asked any of them to endorse the proposal. And I I think it's probably safe to say that not all of them agree with all parts of the proposal, but uh, they were incredibly generous with their time and expertise. And the final product reflects a lot of their input. So uh, in terms of coming up with criteria for deployment, that were narrower and more specific than the existing criteria. First, we removed the arcane and ambiguous language like unlawful combinations or assemblages. We divided the criteria into three main categories, including uh, actual insurrection against the government, domestic violence with or without a government target, and obstruction of the law. And then we added some narrowing criteria to the domestic violence and obstruction of the law categories to make clear that they have to rise to the level 
where there's an imminent threat to public safety that exceeds the capacity of civilian law enforcement. And of course, these narrowing principles are necessarily somewhat subjective. We did not want to you know, micromanage the process. We did not want to uh, explicitly list what it would look like to have an imminent threat to public safety or to exceed the capacity of civilian law enforcement. But that's why judicial review is an important part of our proposal. And so uh, obviously, I think we'll get to that a little bit later in the conversation. But yeah, that that's what we attempted to do. And we tried to really walk the line between uh, placing problematic limits on the president to act in the case uh, of an actual insurrection or widespread severe domestic violence or, you know, state or local authorities refusing to implement or civil rights law or refusing to protect people against um, terrorist activity while simultaneously making sure that this could not, that, that this is not an authority that can be used at will by the president, which is pretty much what the current law permits. So you, after you all go through this, as you noted, lies a very intensive process of juggling really difficult questions about what sorts of criteria warrant sorts of responses and how certain responses might be limited in reaction to that. You then take the additional step of kind of bringing back in the other branches, Congress and the judiciary in ways that aren't anticipated in certainly the Modern Insurrection Act, haven't really been anticipated in earlier versions, although there's a couple of early precedents, particularly in the first iteration of uh, the 1792 Call Forth Act, Militias Act, whatever you want to call it, in terms of the judicial role. Joe, why don't you start us talking about this with Congress? How do you all envision Congress now being reinserted into this process in the reformed Insurrection Act you all have laid out? Sure. So the uh, first I'm going to talk about briefly about sort of where we got the idea and then what the idea is. So as you mentioned, Scott, there is uh, in the earliest version of the Insurrection Act precedent for Congress being involved in that uh, when the president wished to uh, use the Insurrection Act to enforce the law and uh, perhaps the president felt that the state militia of the, of the relevant state was unreliable, if uh, he wanted to use out-of-state militia, Congress was involved in that process. There was also limitations. There was a sort of restriction on using uh, out-of-state militia forces. Uh, there was a, a time limit that Congress could uh, uh, extend or not extend as they saw fit. And as we were developing our proposal, we looked at that, and we also did a review of constitutions and laws around the world and uh, to see how other countries approach uh, these sorts of emergency powers. One of the things we found is that many of them allow the legislature to sort of check an invocation of emergency power. So they they grant the executive the authority to sort of act decisively uh, and invoke emergency powers in a crisis. But then there's a relatively quick opportunity for the legislature to check that and potentially stop an abusive deployment. And it took some work to sort of convert, uh, sort of take inspiration from these systems and, and convert them into uh, a mechanism that would work for our, uh, as we all know, unique system. But what we settled on is that uh, under our proposal, the president can invoke the Insurrection Act, does not have to, uh, the president does not have to obtain ex-ante approval from a judge or from Congress or anyone to invoke the Insurrection Act. 
but that authority to deploy the armed forces will expire after seven days unless Congress passes a joint resolution uh, extending the deployment. If Congress is adjourned or out of session, that timeline may be delayed up to 72 hours to allow for reconvening, but not more than that. And then the joint resolution itself, we propose, would be subject to expedited procedures to sort of stop anyone in Congress from sort of dragging the process out and basically ensuring that there would be a vote. The joint resolution would extend the authority to deploy troops for 14 days. Uh, that could be renewed for subsequent 14-day periods as you know Congress at Congress's discretion, but it ensures that both uh, shortly after the invocation, seven days after the invocation, Congress would have to weigh in or the the Invocation Insurrection Act would automatically terminate. And then at intervals along the way for a longer deployment, Congress would again periodically have to weigh in. We settled on these, these particular timelines, both out of a recognition of how long it takes Congress to act. Uh, Congress is very difficult for, for Congress to uh, come together and uh, turn something like this around in, say, 48 hours. Uh, but seven seven days is more feasible. It also accords more or less with the the duration of modern invocations of the Insurrection Act. So, uh, looking at post World War II invocations of the Insurrection Act, uh, and looking only at those because the before World War II, the world is just too different. Uh, you're you're dealing with sort of essentially an unmechanized U.S. armed forces that doesn't have some of its sort of defining characteristics today, namely the ability to get personnel anywhere very quickly. But post-World War II, you have Insurrection Act invitations during the Civil Rights Movement tend to be very long. For instance, um, troops were present in Little Rock, Arkansas for, um, forgive me, I can't remember the exact number, but something in the neighborhood of 250 days. But after the civil rights movement, uh, really after the mid-1960s, they become much shorter. And they're on average about uh, typically not more than 10 days. That is what informed our, our timing of the system. And the one final piece of Congress's role is that the joint resolution will also automatically expire if and when a court renders a final decision after the exhaustion of appeals that the deployment of federal troops violates the Constitution, the Insurrection Act, or any other applicable law. We knew that that Congress, you know, might vote to approve deployments um, in case in places where those deployments actually didn't meet the criteria in the Insurrection Act, and we didn't want those resolutions of that vote to to basically moot any legal challenges that that might have been brought in courts, because we had made it easy for for Congress. To, to approve, we deliberately made it easy for Congress to approve deployments by virtue of these expedited procedures, which among other things would prohibit filibustering. So that it would just be a straight up majority of Congress that would be, that would be approving the deployment. And so we were very wary of having that vote become essentially overriding the terms of the Insurrection Act. Now, while Congress always has the option to amend the Insurrection Act, Amending it to lower the bar for deployment should not be a fast or easy process. It should be subject to the fullest possible debate uh, and consideration. And so that's why we sort of tried to thread the needle between making it too difficult or time consuming for Congress to approve lawful 
deployments on the one hand, but making it too easy to ratify unlawful ones on the other. So essentially, Congress uh, can very easily sort of uh, approve of the deployment, but that will not um, preempt or moot a judge's ability to say, okay, you have the political okay from Congress, but you haven't met the legal bar set forth in the Insurrection Act. Well, and that brings us to the last big element of your reform plan, which is the judicial role. You set up a system for judicial review, something that I don't think is expressly by any means uh, preempted in the current Insurrection Act, but that has been generally assumed to, at a minimum, be highly deferential to the executive. How do you envision setting up a more substantive judicial review around those criteria? How would the statute do that? Uh, yeah, so so the congressional approval requirement um, would provide some, you know certainly some check against presidential overreach. Um, but as I said, we we deliberately made it somewhat easy um, for Congress to approve deployments. And in cases where the president uh, belongs to the same political party that controls Congress, there there is certainly a risk of the political branches joining forces to to chip away at Americans' legal rights and. That's what the judicial branch is for. It exists to uphold the rights and to say what the law is. Um, and there's a quote from the Supreme Court's decision in Hamdi, one of the Guantanamo detainee cases that, that I've always found very powerful, uh, where Justice O'Connor said, whatever power the United States Constitution envisions for the executive in its exchanges with other nations or with enemy organizations in times of conflict, it most assuredly envisions a role for all three branches with individual liberties at stake. Uh, and that most certainly applies to the Insurrection Act. So, you know, as, as mentioned, the Supreme Court uh, held that under, under an earlier version of the Insurrection Act, there was no role for the courts. Uh, but that was based um, in large part on the fact that the law explicitly gave the president the discretion well, what the court said is whenever a statute gives a discretionary power to any person to be exercised by him upon his own opinion of certain facts, it is a sound rule of construction that the statute constitutes him the sole and exclusive judge of the existence of those facts. So we would be changing the statute to make clear that the president is not the sole and exclusive judge of the facts. And so what our proposal would do is create a mechanism for judicial review the judicial review would take place on an expedited basis with an appeal directly from a district court judge to the Supreme Court. Uh, Congress would uh, basically instruct the district court judges to advance those cases on their dockets um, to the greatest extent possible. And, you know, this does, there's precedent for this. There's precedent for cases, uh, appeals going directly from district court judges to the Supreme Court. We did want the standard of review to be fairly deferential. You know, we don't want the judges to be replacing the president's judgment about the need for deployment with their own judgment. Rather, we want that judgment to be brought within a fairly wide range of reasonableness. And so the standard that we are proposing is a substantial evidence standard, which basically means uh, that, you know, a conclusion is supported by substantial evidence if a reasonable person might accept the evidence as adequate to support the conclusion, even though other reasonable people might disagree. So that was the standard that we provided. And we also provided that the that courts would be authorized to provide declaratory or injunctive relief and that standing would be 
uh, you know, in addition to whoever, whoever else might meet the constitutional requirements for standing, that standing would explicitly be available for, you know, people who have a credible threat of injury, a credible fear of injury from deployment. So you wouldn't have to wait until, you know, the troops actually turn their guns on you in order to bring a lawsuit. And uh, there would also be standing for state or local authorities uh, in areas where troops have been deployed without the consent of those authorities. So that's, that is the mechanism that, that we are picturing. Again, we think that having judicial review is really the only way to ensure that the criteria in the act are meaningful. Right now, the criteria are what they are. They're too broad, but they could be as narrow as you can imagine. And it still wouldn't matter because no court can, can review a president's determination that the criteria have been met. So if you're going to have criteria that are meaningful, you really need to have judicial review. Uh, again, we've tried to make it a, a sort of judicial review to prevent abuses, not to second guess uh, president's good faith judgments about the need to deploy the military. So this is a pretty substantial piece of legislation you all have outlined. And it would be a pretty major change in this law, a law that hasn't seen a lot of change the last few years. So, you know, certainly I think the, any realistic assessment will say it, it may take some time uh, and may face some resistance along the way. And in the meantime, we are still in a situation where, as you all have sketched out, there is still potential for abuse and other concerns around the Insurrection Act. So before we part today, let me ask you this question. What would your advice be for policymakers, whether in Congress, in the White House, in the judiciary, although not, not necessarily, probably don't think of themselves as policymakers, but people in the judiciary, in addressing or thinking about these sorts of problems moving forward? You know, how is it that some of those institutions of government at the federal level, at the state level, might be able to curb, prevent, or disincentivize some of the abuses that this is intended to address? if this law is never enacted uh, or until this law is enacted? What are some of the lower hanging fruit that some of those branches might be able to engage in to address these concerns in the interim until we're waiting for some sort of statutory reform? So what first occurs to me is I, I think could be significant is uh, involves the courts. There is precedent, there's Supreme Court precedent that takes the position that when exercising these sorts of emergency powers, you know, specifically domestic deployment of the military, that the president is under an obligation, uh, and this is something that I believe Liza mentioned earlier in our conversation, to act in good faith. And there are, there's, you know, Supreme Court precedent of the court taking the inquiry into the president's good faith seriously. And I think um, there's no reason under current law that courts can't take that inquiry seriously and, and really and dig into the question of is the president in good faith seeking to suppress what the president views as an insurrection and a, a rebellion against the authority of the federal government or is the president seeking to use the military to carry out their whims or to um, preserve themselves in uh, in power when they may have you know uh, lost a presidential election or uh, something like that. That would be sort of my my first answer is that uh, in, encourage the courts to take their role seriously and and, and take uh, their obligation to uh, ensure that the president is acting in good faith seriously if if they find themselves asked to 
review an invocation of the Insurrection Act. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also say that state and local authorities can force the president to actually use the Insurrection Act. And I know that sounds a little bit uh, odd, but what I mean is that there is tremendous political, I don't know if pressure is the right word, but there are political obstacles, let's say, to invoking the Insurrection Act. And that's why we haven't seen it done uh, since 1992. It just, the the use of the federal military uh for law enforcement purposes to suppress civil unrest is very jarring to modern sensibilities. And so they're, you know, most presidents are not going to want to do it. And, and even Donald Trump, he did not actually end up invoking the Insurrection Act. So there's a lot of sort of there are political headwinds against using it. What presidents, what Trump did instead, and what I'm worried about future presidents doing, is to use a kind of loophole in the law that allows the president to use military force without the constraints of the Posse Comitatus Act and therefore without invoking the Insurrection Act. And that is the use of the National Guard in in what's called a hybrid status. So uh, ordinarily, the Guard operates under the command and control of the governors of the states. They are in state active duty status. They can be called into federal status by the president, and then they operate under Title X. But there's something called hybrid status, where they uh, can pursue a, a federal mission that is set out by the president or by the secretary of defense, and they will be paid with federal funds, but they are still under the command and control of the governors. And for that reason, they are considered to be not subject to the Posse Comitatus Act. And this is problematic, I would say, under any interpretation, because it effectively allows the president to act through friendly state governors to achieve federal domestic military objectives without the constraints of posse comitatus, without invoking the Insurrection Act. Uh, It's particularly problematic since the executive branch, at least under Trump, interpreted the law to allow one state to deploy their forces uh, on a federal mission into another jurisdiction without that jurisdiction's consent, which means all the president has to do is find one willing governor somewhere and they can, and that governor will then send their National Guard forces pretty much anywhere in the country. And this has basically opened up a, a glaring loophole in Posse Comitatus. And the, what the state and local authorities can do about that is they can refuse. They have the absolute right in this hybrid status to decline a federal mission, and they should not deploy National Guard forces into another state uh, without, or into another jurisdiction without that jurisdiction's consent. For And frankly, I don't think they should be using uh, National Guard forces under this hybrid status to suppress civil unrest at all, because I don't think that's what Congress intended through the law that created this hybrid status. So I know that's kind of long and complicated, but I think that uh, governors in particular should turn a very skeptical eye on federal requests to deploy troops, especially into other jurisdictions to suppress civil unrest. Of course, if the, you know, if the president really needs to use National Guard forces to suppress civil unrest that has truly risen to the level of an insurrection or domestic violence that can't be controlled by civilian authorities. He has the ability and would continue to have the ability under our proposal to federalize the National Guard, and then he can send them anywhere he wants. But he should have to actually 
invoke the act and take that political hit in order to do that. Well, there's certainly a lot more to unpack around this issue. I think we're going to have opportunities to revisit it, but we are out of time for today. But Liza, Joseph, thank you for joining me here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you, Scott. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. Also, be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this podcast and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal, and our audio engineer was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.